Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Well, here we are, the first workday of 2022 uh, for most of us, and certainly the first political rewind of the new year. I'm Bill Nygut. I I certainly hope that um, as many of you as possible found some peace uh, and joy, uh, connections to the people you love over the holidays, and that uh, despite the fact that the coronavirus continues to overshadow so much of our lives, con- uh, despite the fact that our politics continues to be troubling on so many levels, I hope that 2022 is going to be a happy year in many ways for uh, all of us. I know that uh, here at Political Rewind, we've been waiting for 2022 with great expectations because this is an enormously important election year, clearly. And today on the show, we're going to look at what are some of the major stories that we think will drive the news cycle uh, throughout the year with that focus around elections in particular. So uh, let's get right to it. Um, We're joined as we are on Mondays by Jim Galloway, who, of course, uh, spent many years as the political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How are you, Jim? I'm doing great. Happy New Year to you and to everybody, every, everyone else on the panel. Yes, and I've got to say, Jim, I couldn't be happier that you are with us at the start of yet another year on the show. And I feel the same way about our other panelists today. Uh, they include Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Democrat from Decatur. Mary Margaret, uh, thank you for being with us. You're joining us from a very beautiful part of the state today. I'm joining you from the magical island of Sapelo. Uh, I've been here all weekend, uh, hosted by Department of Natural Resources at the Reynolds uh, Mansion. All of Georgia can enjoy these islands and appreciate our DNR leadership, uh, Mark Williams, the commissioner, and Tony Petronis, who's the manager of all of this beauty. It's a magical, magical place, very full of Georgia's history from the Indians through today. Well, thank you for taking time uh, from your trip to be with us today. We're also joined by uh, Professor Andre Gillespie. Uh, you know Andre as political science professor at Emory University and also as the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Happy New Year to you, Andre. Happy New Year <clears throat> to you and to everyone listening. <clears throat> um, we're going to uh, have get a lot uh, from you today, particularly when we uh, talk a bit about uh, what Stacey Abrams and a kind of a tightrope she may have to walk in terms of how far to the left she is able to move or wants to move uh, in the upcoming election. We're also joined by Edward Lindsay, former state representative from the city of Atlanta, now leads the Georgia, the state of Georgia public policy practice for Denton's Edward, which we know is the world's largest law firm. How are you doing, Edward? I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Happy New Year, y'all. Well, thank you for being uh, with us today. All right, let's get right to it. Um, I want to start the show by talking a little bit about COVID-19. That said, tomorrow on the show, 
I'm very happy to say Carlos Del Rio is going to be with us. Um, he obviously is one of the great public health experts on COVID, and we'll be getting into the medical side, the public health side of COVID tomorrow. So today uh, we'll talk about it from a political point of view. Uh, but we should start by saying, Jim, uh, the numbers in Georgia, as they are across the country, are alarming. Uh, I think the daily average of new cases in Georgia is around 14,300. Um, there are about 3,200 people hospitalized in the state now. Uh, we should say, by the way, that the increase in cases, this is really staggering. In the last 14 days, we've had like a 700 percent increase in the number of positive PCR uh, test positive for uh, the virus. So, so Jim, uh, we are not out of the woods, and many people are now back to sheltering in place, essentially, to working remotely and thinking through every aspect of how they're going to deal with their lives three years uh, in the third year of this pandemic. Right. And, and the immediate impact is, is I'm not sure. That, well, I guess everything is political, but it's, it's also policy because you've got Clayton, DeKalb and Fulton County school systems uh, deciding to start the year, uh, the, 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 uh, the rest of the school year virtual uh, out my way up in up in Cobb County. They're 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 standing pat as is as is Mary, the Marietta school system, uh, and that's the, obviously that's going to be a, the a, the point of a, a lot of debate uh, this week. But then you've also got the you've got the you've got the legislative uh, the, the legislature coming into session on on uh, next Monday. Uh, just in seven days, and uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and Mary Margaret can tell me if I'm wrong, but you know they're, they're going to be using the same protocols that they used last year. Uh, they have not lifted them. Uh, you're going to have to you're going to have to test uh, t twice a week, I think. Mary Margaret, is that correct? That's correct. And uh, COVID seems closer to me in terms of my day to day life than it has at any point. Um, the ways that my day schedules before I came down here to the coast was changing every day based on who was testing and, and what was happening right around me. Um, <clears throat> we are still going to be giving legislators the option of sitting in the gallery, not sitting next to people, mandatory testing, mandatory masking on the House side, no page program, no guests to the Capitol. Um, Speaker Alston has been particularly vigilant and, and I think appropriately strict on COVID protocols. We, I personally was hoping that I could open up more in this new session to my interns coming in and students coming in that I work with a lot during the session, but it doesn't look like that'll happen, at least in January. Uh, we're looking towards peaks in January the next few weeks, and then there's a possibility we'll get a little relief in February. We'll watch how that develops and, of course, talk about it on the show. But, Andrew, let's talk about the politics of this um, in, in a couple ways. First of all, we know that President Biden's approval ratings have suffered for a variety of reasons around COVID-19. One, because the vaccine mandate he put into place has been very unpopular with a certain segment of uh, people in this country, and certainly people, some people in Georgia, including the governor, uh, the attorney general, and and uh, legislative leaders. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and and so the question first is: To what extent? 
Do we think that uh, Biden losing some momentum in terms of his approval ratings because of the vaccine mandates, but also because COVID is roared, has roared back to life, is going to have an effect on races in Georgia across, especially congressional races, uh, but, but even up, um, coming down into the state races? Are, are Georgians going to hold him accountable somehow and take that out on maybe Democrats in the state, or is that far-fetched? You know, it, it, it's still probably a little premature to tell at this point how salient COVID is going to be by the summer and certainly by the fall. Um, but, you know, if today is any indication, this is still going to be pretty relevant and it's not going to be that distant a memory. And so, you know, I think the issue or the challenge is, is that this time last year, there was a lot of hope that there was going to be the promise of um, uh, sort of a competent administration handling the crisis. And in some ways, they have been able to demonstrate that. There are certain things that have happened in the past year that we can't imagine having happened in, in, in the Trump administration. But there also is this other side that there are the places where they stumbled and faltered. So the idea that, like, people are running around and they are unable to get tests and unable to get them cheaply, you know, is a failure that should have been anticipated and matched. So there are ways that, the you know, the Biden administration has, has, has fallen short. And so it kind of undermines this idea that you had sort of the more experienced hands kind of taking over. And it seems to suggest that it didn't matter who was president, like there was still going to be something that was difficult. So there is that. But then there's also the issue of partisanship um, and sort of calcified negative partisanship where people oppose things just because you have the wrong letter behind your name. And I think overall, ultimately, and I, and, and I don't think that this is going to be used as the calculus when people are making their, their, their voting decisions. But for things that have gone wrong in this country, we often blame the president for things that are beyond the control and the purview of the presidency. So the idea that COVID continued to spread because we can't achieve herd immunity here because people refuse to get vaccinated and we're now on the Omicron variant, right? How much of that is government mismanagement versus people refusing to take responsibility for their own behavior, right, because they want to oppose somebody? Um, and in particular, people want to talk about the lack of bipartisanship. Uh, or Biden being too progressive, when you have a Congress that refuse or Republican members of Congress who refuse to support him on anything on principle, how much of that is his fault versus how much of that is part of the collective problem? Edward? Well, the fact of the matter is that uh, President Biden uh, lost the expectation game. Uh, he came into office uh, pledging that within six months we would have this behind us. As a matter of fact, on July 4th, he uh, had his version of a, a mission accomplished uh, a speech. Uh, so uh, and for political leaders, the, the worst thing you can do is be on the wrong side of expectations. He built expectations up uh, to uh, having uh, this behind us uh, well before now, and instead we are in the middle of a crisis. I can tell you from personal experience the difficulties over the last few weeks in dealing with the crisis, because I, I don't know if I am, but I, but I believe I might be the first member of, the, of your panel who is COVID positive. Uh, I am presently locked down uh, at my house. Uh, and I will tell you right now, uh, both in terms of trying to, to uh, get a uh, home test and in terms of finding a location that could uh, test me, uh, it was extremely difficult over the last 10 days. I sat in line uh, at a place that were as efficient as they possibly could be, but it took a little over two hours uh, sitting uh, in a, in a uh, car line waiting to be tested. 
uh, because there was nowhere, uh, either online or in a store, in which I could get a home test available to me. So you have that frustration going on with people. And like I said, people are just tired. In terms of where we go from here to Election Day, what I tell folks is that while there are certain partisans on each side of the divide who are who are into the details, into the weeds in terms of how we get there, the average voter doesn't care. The average voter simply wants to know come next November uh, whether or not uh, their kids are in school, uh, their jobs are secure, uh, they can go into a store without mask on, and that sort of thing. That's what the folks are looking for. If we are in that situation, uh, the president will be looking pretty good. If we're not in that situation on this particular issue, the, the president will be in serious trouble because whoever's in office is going to be the one who gets blamed. And, and Mary Margaret, to what extent could that, if, if, if things don't uh, turn around, could that have an impact on Democrats uh, running in the state of Georgia? I want to agree with Ed that the personal struggles everybody is facing to get tested in a day-to-day changing environment for all of us have been extremely frustrating. And people do think personally first about the care of their family. I'm particularly worried about the young families today who all of a sudden had planned to go back to work and now their children are at home and can't. Uh, the personal frustrations are going to continue. And who are the who are the families going to blame? I mean, are the, can they blame uh, their fellow citizens who refuse to be tested? Can they blame partisan politics? Or can they blame Joe Biden? And as people experience these frustrations and experience these interruptions in their day life, I think they're going to think personally first, am I going to be safe today? My children going to get to go to school? And how are we going to get towards uh, back to a fully productive life? The folks I talk to, obviously, in, in my region, my area, my uh, constituents are mad at the people who won't get vaccinated, and they're blaming it on partisan politics. So to say it's going to be blamed or that Biden is going to suffer, I think it's going to – people are going to think personally first, how is this affecting me? What do I need to do today to get tested so I can go to court on Wednesday or whatever the issue is for the week? and not so much thinking about elections. They are very upset about partisanship, and that's not going to change or be alleviated by the COVID struggles. Yeah, if I if I could jump in here, Bill, uh, we've been talking about COVID in, in in Democratic Republican terms, but we also have to remember that Brian Kemp is facing a very very tough primary challenge from David Perdue, and that could that could also lead the the governor just as vulnerable as Biden in in some in some fashion. Uh, uh, I I don't know how hard Perdue will press him on that. Uh, we haven't seen anything yet. But, you know, if we're talking about a lack of testing sites or, or a lack of, of, of state participation in the anti-COVID campaign, then, uh, then I, I, th- I think he become, Kemp, Kemp does become vulnerable. Um, well, yeah, that was going to be my next question. Edward, it, it, a couple of things about that. Um, number one, I, I want to echo something I think Andres said quite correctly, and that is that the lack of tests available, which you experienced personally, and I'm so sorry that you find yourself positive for COVID, and I'm glad that apparently your <clears throat> symptoms have been really mild, thank goodness. But 
the Biden administration deserves an enormous hit for their failure to provide enough tests. This is, and to have said we couldn't have anticipated this next surge. It strikes me that that is a big blow to the credibility they thought they'd established uh, earlier on in terms of being able to handle the the um, this, the uh, virus. But but more to the point. Brian Kemp is not adding any mitigation efforts, nor does he—he he talked about getting the National Guard out to help health workers, that sort of thing, putting more money uh, into uh, uh, dealing with COVID. But there's no additional mitigation effort going on from the governor. And the question is, is that going to be okay? And would David Perdue really be the guy who would jump up and— and and go contrary to what a lot of his conservative friends have said about let's not worry as much about COVID as they want you to be worried. Well, I think whoever's in power, like I said, I I, I do. I, I think the average voter uh, doesn't really uh, get into the weeds, but simply ask themselves whether or not their life is better uh, underneath a particular administration. I think that uh, and that's going to hurt Biden if if this continues. I think it also has a certain throwback against uh, the governor as well, or anybody in power, or the, or the new mayor of Atlanta, or anybody in power. Uh, during times of crisis, people want to see their leaders stepping up. And what I would advise uh, each of them is that to uh, step up and do what you can and make an appearance of doing what you can. Don't, do, don't get in front of a camera or a microphone too much. A great line I saw yesterday on uh, – on one of the political shows was a commentator who said the problem for Trump is that he talked too much. Uh, and the problem for Biden is that he talked too little. Uh, people want to see leadership here. Uh, and, and sometimes the, the small things are important. Uh, having a governor stepping up and walking with national guards and uh, guardsmen into a particular facility to help alleviate uh, the lines is important. Having the president to step up and say, okay, things are tougher, but here are the things they're going to do. Last week, for instance, was a disaster for Biden because it almost appeared that he was, he was backpedaling in terms of what the federal government is going to do. When he said, well, you know, federal government can't do too much here. This is primarily a state issue. Well, when he ran for office, it was primarily a federal issue. So that didn't help the president there. So each of these people, from the mayor, from the mayors uh, in our respective cities to the governor to the to the president, each of them needs to be doing better during this crisis. Okay. By the way, Andre Dickens is being sworn in today as yeah. mayor of Atlanta, and he is continuing uh, the uh, COVID mitigation uh, rules that uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms had put in place, signaling very early on he intends to do his best to uh, keep his, uh, the people of the city as safe as possible. Uh, let's move on to another one of the big stories that I know we're going to be talking about this year. And that's this, what many people are characterizing as a civil war within the Georgia Republican Party. I, that may or may not be a correct uh, characterization, but certainly, certainly you have the very, very adamant pro-Trump forces uh, like a David Perdue taking on Brian Kemp in the gubernatorial primary, uh, like other uh, state uh, Republican elected leaders, supporting Trump's uh, ongoing contention that the 2020 election here was rigged. 
Uh, you've got leaders like a Jeff Duncan, who's not even running for re-election, saying we've got to get over that. The election was legitimate. We've got to look to the future of what we can become as Republicans. And, and Jim Galloway, uh, there's no question that this battle uh, for the soul of the Republican Party is going to be a huge story that will follow this year. Right, and in that vein, if I could, if I could uh, give a shout out to my former employer, uh, uh, the AJC uh, put out a just a, a just a, a really nice year long breakdown of of how Georgia has become kind of the centerpiece for for uh, how, how how it became the centerpiece for Trump's efforts to 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 uh, undo the election results of of 2020 uh, and and it, it very cli- clearly deline- delineates uh, which republicans stepped up to stop that effort and and uh, who stepped up to to push that effort through uh, and and uh, i think those are going to be the divide that's going to be the dividing line uh, in in uh, uh, in in the coming months, especially from here here until the May primaries, you've got. Uh, uh, I mean, just in, in, I, I don't know if you want to get to it quickly. I mean, the the best example of this is going to come on on Thursday, uh, which of course is the 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 one year anniversary of of the January sixth insurrection, at two o'clock um, in Atlanta. Uh, we have a memorial service for the late U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson, uh, who who built the Republican Party with a reputation for for reaching out to to uh, to his political opponents. Then at five o'clock, of course, you've got Donald Trump with a press conference out of Mar-a-Lago, where he's probably going to 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 try to to uh, uh, in, in, in install. Uh, uh, the the January sixth insurrectionists in, into some sort of saintly hall of fame, and that's going to be emphasized by a Cobb County rally, a Cobb County GOP rally, in honor of the January sixth insurrectionists. Yeah, it, the invitation reads: uh, uh, Cobb, Cobb Cobb GOP welcomes in twenty twenty two GAT. Uh, F. I don't know what those initials stand for. Uh, if somebody on the panel does, that's fine. But this is a contingent of right-wingers in the Cobb Republican Party. And it says, you're invited. The patriots are awake, willing, and eager to protect their American freedoms and liberties. They are going to uh, rally and hold a candlelight vigil, Mary Margaret, for the J6 that's become kind of a republic, a, a right-wing Republican term for people who were arrested in the insurrection. For J6 prisoners, they're going to live stream President Trump's, Trump's press conference and roll out a new action plan for getting their message out. Mary Margaret, uh, turning the people who stormed the Capitol into patriots. I think that's going to be horrifying to many, many, many Georgians who are, again, trying to live their life and move forward. Honoring folks who have committed felonies and harming law enforcement officers in the process, attacking law enforcement officers in the process, is going to be horrifying to average voters. The partisanship that's going to play out in Georgia's leading national political story of 2022, there's no question that Georgia's going to be at the top at the top of the political stories uh, of 2022 are going to be uh, illustrated in a very painful way within the Republican leadership. Uh, In the Senate side, it's a free-for-all about uh, 
candidates for Burt Jones and Butch Miller trying to be more right to anybody, what Kemp's path will be to be as far right as the language or the rhetoric of Purdue. And David Ralston is going to be trying to protect his members from entering those kind of what I think are going to be destructive uh, assaults against each other within the Republican Party. Georgia is going to continue to be on the front page of the New York Times and the partisanship that's going to be demonstrated by things like honoring these guys who committed felonies against law enforcement officers in our national capital, that's what they think is a good political idea this week, is going to be very, very painful for the Republican Party. And more importantly, more importantly, average voters trying to deal with their own day-to-day lives are not going to be reassured that the political leadership of Georgia is in good hands by watching this kind of theatrics. Edward? Well, let me first start by simply saying that a party that focuses on the last election rather than the next election is a party that's in danger. Uh, And so it's up to the Republicans in Georgia to start focusing on 2022 rather than 2020. And I certainly hope that they do. Uh, The example of what happened in Virginia uh, should be a roadmap for Georgia Republicans on how to win in 2022, which is that they focused on the next election, while the Democrats in that that gubernatorial race two months ago tried to focus on the last election. And that should be an example to both parties. Uh, Bill started off this segment by talking about whether or not this is a civil war within the Republican Party. I would, A, agree, but I would go one step further in that it's an unnecessary war, but for Donald Trump. And the fact of the matter is, if you look at it from a, from a Republican-based perspective, uh, from their various factions of the Republican Party, Brian Kemp ought to be coasting through a primary. Uh, the business Republicans uh, should be happy because you know, we have uh, new businesses, new companies coming into Georgia, uh, massive economic development taking place, record unemployment taking place. Social conservatives ought to be happy with them uh, within the Republican base. I mean, you have the heartbeat bill and other bills that the Democrats hate, but the Republican social conservative base should love. You've got uh, suburban moderates should be happy with this governor uh, when you consider things such as he, he took them. He took the, the fight uh, and successfully passed a, a strong, arguably the strongest hate crimes, anti-hate crimes bill in the country got passed under his administration. He also led the charge in, in abolishing citizens' arrest. He also took, uh, took the head in sending the GBI into Brunswick, dealing with that horrific situation that took place down there. So you've got these various factions within the Republican Party that ought to be have allowing this governor, at least through the primary, to be coasting, uh, but for Donald Trump, who is out for vengeance uh, and is uh, has been pushing candidates up and down uh, the ticket uh, to come out and take on uh, existing Republicans uh, in power uh, because he did not feel that they were sufficiently loyal to him. Not that they weren't uh, following through with Republican principles in governing, but they simply failed to show uh, at, you know, uh, loyalty to to, to Trump. So, with, so not only is it a civil war bill, but it is a unnecessary war from the Republican standpoint. Andre, before we get to a break, let me give you a last word on this. So, 
you know, I was thinking about this in the context of sort of the previous question about how COVID is going to affect us. And, I, you know, right now, today, I don't know what I'm going to feel in three months or six months, but it feels like this is like year three of 2020 because this is how people are, are kind of acting. And so it's kind of like groundhog year all over again. And the issue why this matters is, is that because we are still fighting COVID, because we are still relitigating the 2020 election, I think this is going to, the voters are going to come down to this. There are voters who are going to be constrained by this. Um, and we think it's likely going to be suburban, college-educated white voters who are going to be the ones who are going to be really cross-pressured. And I think the larger question is, what are they going to be more upset about? Are they going to be more upset about sort of COVID sort of not always being managed well um, and thus be willing to excuse the excesses that um, are happening in the Georgia Republican Party? Are they going to be able to dismiss like this January 6th wing as being a fringe wing within Republican Party politics in the state? Um, or are they going to respond to some other kind of cultural touchstone that would sort of keep them in the Republican camp um, and actually get them to turn out to vote on Election Day? So, you know, I think in some ways we are still talking about the same stuff that we would have been talking about, you know, not quite two years ago, but perhaps 22 or 20 months ago. All right. Uh, Andre Gillespie gets the last word in the first segment of Political Rewind. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Andre Gillespie, uh, Jim Galloway, Edward Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver join me on today's uh, Political Rewind. By the way, Mary Margaret has mentioned twice uh, Speaker Ralston on the show so far today. David Ralston will be joining us on Thursday uh, and we'll be asking him about some of the very issues that we're talking about right now. And it'll be fascinating to hear how he <laughs> navigates through some of the really uh, troubling uh, matters that he's going to have to deal with <clears throat> in this particular legislative session. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Jim Galloway, very quickly, and we, t- we talk about kind of the move toward the far right, the Trumpites, uh, and how they may have an impact on the election. We don't want to overlook the fact that breaking news yesterday was uh, that uh, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene has now been permanently banned from Twitter, uh, her personal account. She still has her congressional account uh, because she continues to spread uh, 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 misleading and dishonest and untruthful information about COVID. The most recent tweet, apparently, according to the New York Times, and the one that got her banned was one in which she reported that uh, the vaccines are killing many, many uh, people. She's gone. But Jim, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, uh, Lauren Boebert, we, for a long time, have kind of dismissed them as being just sort of radical right kind of kooks almost. But they are gaining a certain traction in Congress. And the question is, what will they do over the course of the year that might have an impact on the election cycle? Yeah, it's um, it's on one hand, you know, you 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 have to applaud Twitter for for doing the obviously appropriate thing. On the other hand, uh, this is this establishes Marjorie Taylor Greene as a as a as a as a victim uh, of of big tech, and I'm sure she's going to use that uh, in in her, in her in her fundraising. I think what you have to look at though, with 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 Greene and with Matt Gates and. And with uh, the 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 the, the uh, other members of the U.S. House in in that in that kind of small knot, is is that they they are going to have a tremendous influence over uh, over whether uh, Kevin McCarthy is going to become the next mm-hmm. U.S. House Speaker because it's 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 I mean the odds 
very much favor a, a Republican takeover of that chamber in, in November. And uh, they're going, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who does not have a, a sit on any committees right now because of her past, uh, past statements, uh, she's going to have a lot of clout. She's, and, and McCarthy has all, all, all but promised her some, some very juicy assignments. What, what you have to worry about is, it, to me, is the language they, they're bringing to the table. I mean, if, if, uh, if, you, if you go back to, to the 2018-2020 cycles, uh, there was a Republican, uh, kind of a Republican uh, agreement that the word socialist ought to apply to, to Democrats. Uh, obviously, that, that didn't work too well uh, on the presidential level. It worked fine in, in, in some of the House races of 2020. Uh, Green is pushing that. She and, she and, she's followed Trump. They're using the word communist. You know, and, and, and quite frankly, I don't, I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene knows what a communist is. And, and it's, it's, it's rather ironic given the fact that, that, that she's, uh, she's, she's kind of leading a, a, a Leninist uh, dictatorship of the proletariat in some fashion. <laughs> Jim Galloway, uh, that may be the line of the show uh, today. Mary Margaret, you wanted to jump in. I, I can't top that, but I will say that Marjorie Taylor Greene's um, ridiculousness that Twitter has responded responsibly to uh, makes her farther and farther and farther off the fringe to make her more and more irrelevant. Again, to the people who matter, who are your average voter, the folks trying to get to work today, who are just tired of this kind of ridiculousness. This kind of absurdity that she theatrically plays out every day, and now we'll have less of a platform to do that, but we'll go to some other extreme. Fewer and fewer people, in my guesstimate, in 2022, as they struggle through what we're all struggling through, are going to find that entertaining, interesting, or helpful. Again, if you're in a 50-50 state like Georgia... She is going to continue to offend more people statistically than support people or make people happy. It's ridiculous that she gets the attention she does. It's harmful to our body politic. And what can the Republican leadership do? And they seem to be wanting to keep her going. Uh, Andra, I want to give you a chance, and then Edward, I want to talk about how how she makes it more difficult to be a Republican these days. But Andra, go first. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think there are a couple of things that are at play. One, I think we do have to critique the media environment that we're in now. Um, this show, except you know, it's you know being the exception. But because you have so much airtime to fill, it opens up opportunities for people to pull stunts and to be able to get attention. And there has to be some restraint. Uh, that media do in terms of, you know, not giving voice to silly antics. Um, and, and so I think we kind of have to take ownership of the environment in which we are creating ourselves. But also it's just it's been easier for people like Green to be able to platform themselves and to get lots of attention, especially when they've been aided and abetted. And their example has been Donald Trump, um, you know, who uses reality TV and the antics of the genre to kind of, you know, start to launch a political career. I think, you know, that's part of what's going on. I think the other issue is that parties are weak. And I think that that sort of leads into that last discussion. 
parties are weak. Once upon a time when the Democratic and the Republican parties were stronger, there was a way for party leadership to enforce discipline and also to be a better gatekeeper for extremist types of candidates, right? You know, once upon a time, people like Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, even, dare I say, people like AOC probably wouldn't have made it past the party bosses mm. in their respective communities because their views would have been viewed as, as being out of the mainstream. The consequence of parties weakening um, and the rise of personality is is that you get folks who can kind of grab the spotlight. And when it's taken to its most dangerous extreme, then you end up creating cults of personality, like I think what the Republican Party is dealing with with Donald Trump. So I think the final thing that the voters in the 14th district need to think about is for all the airtime that Marjorie Taylor Greene gets, that's not the metric by which you should be looking for effective representation. What you should be looking for is what is she sponsoring? What goods is she being able to deliver to the community? Is she being responsive to your constituent needs? I don't think that they you know, will necessarily sort of have a judgment on that that's going to negatively hurt her in 2022. But if she manages to hold on to her seat, eventually those types of antics are going to be her undoing in the same way that they have been the undoing of other people in this state who got a lot of TV time and didn't actually like really do their job. So. Mm. Edward? Well, uh, Andre's right. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, even on more substantive shows like ours, and I'm very proud of the substance that we, we get into, uh, we're spending a lot more time talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, than, uh, than we were talking about Austin Scott, Buddy Carter, Drew Ferguson, or some of the congressmen, uh, other Republican congressmen uh, from Georgia who are uh, up uh, in the Capitol uh, trying to pass legislation uh, and trying to work with the other sides. Uh, and the same thing goes with folks on the left. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, we live in a personality uh, cult uh, society now in which someone who can uh, get before a microphone and say something provocative, uh, whether they be on the right or the left, tend to get a lot more publicity than the folks who are simply just uh, keeping their nose to the grindstone and trying to pass substantive legislation. And, uh, and I would certainly hope that, uh, that the press as a whole will start, and, and, and we as individual voters will start paying a little more attention to folks like that rather than these fringe individuals such as uh, Ms. Green on one end of the spectrum or AOC on the other. Uh, you know, they, they, they both uh, represent to one degree or another uh, folks who are, um, who are more interested in, in making a big splash rather than getting something done. Um, you know, I thank you for those comments, both uh, you, Edward, and Andre, in terms of the media attention paid to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, because it's something I struggle with on this show all the time. Um, I, I, on one hand, I think that we, we, we do sometimes uh, uh, talk about her because of the outrageousness of, <coughs> excuse me, some of what she says. But I also think at times we've got to point out that there really is that contingent of Republicans who are increasingly driving an agenda in Washington that we do need to uh, be able to keep be mindful of. So I do think it's a balancing act, and I do think we go over the line sometimes. And I promise you that in 2022, I'm going to do my best not to get trapped uh, uh, by all of that, that sort of easy, easy fodder for conversation. 
Um, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, I do want to talk a little bit about what we look for, for in the legislative session uh, coming up. Mary Margaret, you're getting set for it. And then uh, let's talk also briefly at least about the fact the Supreme Court is going to be making a huge, huge ruling on abortion in uh, the spring and what will that be uh, in terms of its impact on the elections. You're listening to Political Rewind. Uh, Mary Margaret Oliver, you're getting set. A week from today, you'll go back into session, although we learned this morning that because Georgia plays, of course, for the championship, uh, <clears throat> national football championship Monday night, on your side of the aisle, at least, uh, or of the building, uh, Speaker Ralston starting the session at 8 a.m., doing a quick one, getting everybody out of there so him and a few others can head up to Indianapolis for the game. Um, and, of course, we'll all be watching that game with great excitement. But, Mary Margaret, um, there are concerns, as you well know, that given now this battle, especially between Purdue and Kemp, but also, again, between the the Trump acolytes and those who want to go in a different direction in the Republican Party, that we may see some of the most conservative legislation yet uh, introduced by Republicans. One awfully strong example of that is Jan Jones, who is— talked a number of times about a bill she is going to push forward to ban so-called obscene materials in Georgia schools. In other words, social hot-button issues that will, uh, they hope, generate excitement among the base. Go dogs. <laughs> but speaking of the uh, nose to the grindstone and producing real legislation and real benefits to Georgia's citizens, um, I'm spending a lot of time this week on budget preparation. We have the largest surplus in the in my entire long career, and we have a largest uh, amount of federal COVID relief money that has not been appropriated or spent at this time. My biggest worry is that, and I've said this repeatedly over the last six months is that we're going to blow this opportunity to spend money effectively in a way that's going to help real Georgians. And particularly when this uh, primary campaign between Kemp and Purdue uh, continues on its path of rhetoric, um, I fear that the use of money to say you're going to eliminate the income tax, the use of money to give bonuses or tips to state employees to um, try to uh, bring the teachers back when you're being insulting to the teachers on this book banning stuff, um, all of that is is big worry to me. Um, Nose to the grindstone people are looking at real budget opportunities here and also looking at things like major mental health reform in a way that's going to be meaningful to voters. Uh, the Republican primary is a between Kemp and Purdue is a huge obstacle, my fear is, to doing really good work for Georgia citizens with the opportunities we have. Jim? Yeah, I, I will tell you what. Uh... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we do have a governmental affairs person on the program here because mm-hmm. I sure would like him to take up the cause of, of, of this state's school librarians, uh, and be, in, in this in this legislation about 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 uh, about book banning. 
what I fear most is, you know, I mean, individual titles, you know, you can, you, you can go to court and you can get a judge to say, oh, this, this legislation is too broad or not too broad. What I fear is what we've seen in other states, and that is attempt to, to criminalize school librarians uh, who, who, who administer these, these book collections. Uh, and 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 push them out to students who they think need need the material. Hey, uh, uh, Edward, it sounds like Galloway is trying to troll for a new client for Denton's uh, the School Librarians Association. But comment on what he just said. Well, all right. Uh, first off, uh, we have clients who are interested in this this space already. Uh, <laughs> of course, so you do. <laughs> the devil, the devil will be in the details. Uh, obviously, uh, librarians should not be facing possible criminal sanctions uh, for having books on their shelves, and uh, we'll have to see what the final legislation looks like. Pivoting back to Mary Margaret, while I while I took a whack at uh, at the media and even a, a slight ding on this, this show. Uh, let me also give compliments to the show for having folks like Mary Margaret on, uh, who is one of the people in the trenches working very hard and, and doing substantive work. Uh, she on her side, you got folks like Chuck Abstration on the other side who are also trying to get substantive legislation and others uh, get, get things done. And uh, this session does have face a lot of serious issues. Uh, dealing with ARPA funding, dealing with other issues uh, that I would certainly hope will be a primary focus of this session rather than some of these side issues. The fact of the matter is, however, as a result of redistricting, and I've, I've, I've faced elections after redistricting, uh, for the most part, folks are going to have to go back to their, their respective base, whether it's left or the right, because a large number of them are facing voters that they have never seen before as a result of redistricting. And so they got to go home and sort of feed their base. And the question is, since Republicans are power, what are they going to do to pass to feed their base? And for that matter, what are we Democrats going to be doing to at least make noise in the General Assembly so they can feed their base when they have to go back and face new voters as well? So you're going to see a, a fair amount of that on both sides. Obviously, Republicans are going to be in the position to be able to actually push legislation. So that uh, that may have more of a greater consequence. Andra? I mean, I think, you know, this is a class of sort of run towards your base, which is going to be more extreme. And then it's a question of whether or not you can credibly pivot with the center in a general election, which you might not have to do in some districts because, like, what the primary base looks like is pretty much what the district um, overall looks like. I think we have to ask the question about whether or not this is actually good um, for people to be focused on this. They're hitting these kind of red meat issues because um, they get people angry um, and it gets people turned out to vote. Um, but on the other hand, I think there are larger questions, and I think particularly with respect to books. And I say this as a kid who got pulled out of stuff for religious reasons in public schools as a kid. The idea that you ban it from everybody um, and you don't give sort of like, you know, other parents the opportunity to expose their kids to things that they may want them to see, I think is a larger question that, um, you know, is something that we're going to have to grapple with. But I think, you know, it's in part because it's been goaded by the, the environment. I think it was abetted by what happened in Virginia. And so the idea that, like, this is a, an issue of parental control doesn't figure the other side of the story where we're thinking about censorship. And, and you know, regardless of what you think about these issues, I want to tell parents that the stuff you're trying to prevent your kids from knowing about, a lot of them already know. And, this, and, and a lot of these books are targeted to older kids who can actually handle the information and not the little ones. And, and in all cases, I do know about books that are definitely targeted towards younger kids. But some people want their kids to know about that stuff. All right. Um, 
we are going to continue following that story about the book ban, the potential book ban, uh, critical race theory, another issue the General Assembly will take up. But just enough to say that we know that there's a chance that in this session there will be a sharp turn to the right in some of the legislation introduced uh, this session. Um, finally, um, Andra, we're not going to have a lot of time, but of course we'll talk about it in the weeks ahead. But another huge story we're going to be following this year, Andra, is the Supreme Court's ruling, which we'll see it probably the last ruling they'll issue in June on whether Mississippi's uh, virtual ban on abortion is in fact constitutional. Will they overturn Roe? The impact of that on women is going to be extraordinary, but on politics, where what is it going to be mean? So, I mean, I think the big question is is whether or not this is going to be as galvanizing for Democrats as it has historically been for Republicans for the last 40 years. Um, I, I remember working, um, you know, for a Democratic pollster in the mid-aughts where they would ask questions about abortion. And I just was like, why are y'all asking this? This doesn't even seem to me to be pretty relevant at this particular point. Um, and I think that this is now an issue that Democrats are going to try to harness um, in order to get their base angry, to get them to turn out to vote. So I think that that's going to be the big question. And I think there's also the larger question that if this succeeds, where does the pro-life movement go and are they going to be as galvanized um, mm. in American politics as they have been for the last 45 years? I didn't used to say this, but I'm saying it now. I think that the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe. They might do it in a way where they claim they don't, but in effect, I think they are. I think that the uh, new justices are committed to overturning Roe, and I regret that uh, for the women of Georgia and this nation. Politically, it is going to become a very relevant question as people absorb the fact that the United States Supreme Court is willing to overturn precedent based on political agendas, and the average voter is going to see the reality of what this theatrical uh, red flag waving kind of stuff, red, you know, bad flag waving kind of stuff has resulted in real people. When you want to talk about book banning and you want to talk about taking rights away from women, uh, women voters are going to care and pay attention. Uh, Edward? Well, I, 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 since, since Mary Margaret uh, is, is in the predicting department, I'll, I'll, I'll join in a slightly separate prediction. I, I think they'll amend Roe v. Wade but not uh, overturn it. Uh, keep in mind, Roe v. Wade has uh, – most people forget that it is a balancing test of Roe v. Wade uh, between the right of privacy – of a woman and the, and the role of a state in protecting innocent life. Now, the dividing line in Roe v. Wade was liability. Uh, my guess is they'll probably shift that line uh, so as to uphold the 15 weeks with, with uh, Mississippi, but put this Texas uh, bill of that passed in peril. So um, expect to see something in the middle. If it's something in the middle, I don't expect it to have a huge political impact. Uh, but if it's if it is a full scale overturn like market believes, it could very well have an enormous impact next November. Uh, Jim, final word. You got about thirty seconds. Yeah, I would say just the the one the one uh, optimistic thing I have is that because of the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court is doing what it's doing, it's likely that abortion will not become a hot topic in the legislature this session. All right. Um, by the way, we're out of time, but I should have said. 
the Mississippi law, as, as Edward just pointed out, is a 15-week ban. But in filing subsequently, uh, Mississippi asked the court to actually overturn Roe. So that's what the significant part of this is. We're out of time for today's show. Honor Gillespie, Jim Galloway, Edward Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver. What a fabulous conversation to start off 2022 with. Thank you for being here. We're back with Dr. Carlos Del Rio tomorrow, one of the great experts on uh, public health matters. Um, Until then, please take care. Stay healthy. If you haven't got a booster, go get it. Omicron is out there spreading like wildfire. And we really want you to stay safe so you can keep being listeners to Political Rewind. We'll see you all tomorrow. (laughs) Bye-bye.